Welcome back to another episode of the Dawson D Show. Thank you so much for joining us. If this is your first time here, welcome. And please don't forget to click that subscribe button to stay updated on all things Dawson D. Today's interview is with the one and only Brian Taranto, or as everyone in the music industry calls him, BT. Brian is the owner of Love Police ATM, the leader in concert and event merchandise across Australia and New Zealand. That favourite band t-shirt you've got from that gig you went to years ago, well it's likely BT, he's had a fair bit to do with that shirt. BT began his career in the Aussie music industry over 35 years ago, sweeping the floors as a young 18 year old at what is now known as Australia's largest music and entertainment empire, the Mushroom Group. BT is the king of the merchandise world in Aussie music and he shares with us so much, including how getting fired from his first job in the industry was actually a blessing in disguise. What life is like touring on the road with the biggest names in Aussie music? What does a merchandise deal really look like with a big international act like Ed Sheeran? And the relationship he had with the late, great Michael Gadinsky, the godfather of Australian music and the impact he had on his life and so much more. We learned so much from our chat with BT and I'm sure you're going to walk away inspired to chase after your dreams once you listen to this episode. Enjoy this one, guys. Welcome to the Dawson D Show. Two great mates striving to improve in all areas of their lives. The podcast is designed to empower everyday humans just like us who want to add more joy, energy and happiness into their daily lives. Sharing our real life experiences and everyday struggles, relating to them in a personal way. Expect uncensored stories, plenty of laughs and tips and tricks to inspire you on your own journey. Now, let's go balls deep. Happy Friday, Dean. You feeling all right? You feeling all right? Very excited as always, mate. We've had a good morning and uh, we've got an interesting guest today. We're going down a path we might not have been down before so far. No, exactly. And uh, as our introduction, we, we would have just mentioned our next guest, Brian Torino. Welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, boys. Good to uh, see and hear you. You're, you're coming from uh, the lovely Bondi. Can you uh, share with us where you are, mate? You're, you're sitting in a beautiful spot from what we've seen. Oh, there's a, there's a parking meter obscuring my view of the greatest urban <laughs> beach of, well, on the planet, I reckon. Yes, I'm down here at Bondi Beach. There's, oh, I don't even want to tell you what's just walked past me, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're more than welcome to, Brian. We can cut this stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's gold. I love that. We were just having a, a good chat off air and... It's good to actually see your face and, and I can't wait and thank you for the kind words that you mentioned about us before. But we'd love to start up from where you began. You're a Dandenong boy. You grew up with my dad and that's how I know you. You know, what was it like growing up in Dandenong? Yes, my family and, and your dad's family were all pretty close. We all went to the same school. We all played footy together. For some reason, they didn't play basketball, the Custersons. I'm not quite sure. I think about that now. Why was that? But Dandenong back then was the end of the suburbs and it was literally country outside of Dandenong. You know, I remember as a kid, Endeavour Hills was, there was cow, it was cow paddocks and, and, you know, it's certainly not the case now. But growing up out there, you know, it's like that sort of suburban memories that a lot of people read about or whatever, you know, you stay out in the streets and, you know, just look after each other. and go to church and go to school and go to footy and go and watch the mighty red legs down at Shepley Oval and uh, just do all those 
simple things, you know, ride bikes, ride skateboards, whatever, swim, all yeah. that stuff. Were you, uh, were, you, were you a bad influence on the Custerson boys? <laughs> uh, the holy Custersons, I call them. But um, <laughs> look, I, I would actually go so far as to say they were a bad influence on me. <laughs> uh, but a, a absolutely magnificent influence on me, the Custersons. They were a very important part of my life growing up. And you, I would almost say they shaped my life or seriously helped shape my life of where I am now or, or, you know, where my career headed. And, yeah, they were a really special part of my life growing up, that, that family. Um, but from Desi picking up our rubbish to coaching us in the footy and the friendship with Neil or Yaki, as you probably know him, and, you know, the friendship with all the family, really. And, uh, you know, I, I was pretty much... I wasn't a, a, a fixture at the Custerson House at Four Sunset Grove 100% of the time, but I was there a lot. Yeah, spent many, many times and, you know, a lot of my teenage times and coming of age stuff was around those guys. And it was, it was always good to have a, a different perspective to my home life that came from the Custersons. That's beautiful, mate. What was your home life like? Did you have siblings? Yeah, I've got three older brothers and a younger sister. My home life was, you know, probably pretty traditional of those years. The old man ran a, uh, a business in Dandenong, Taranto Glass, which was quite successful. You know, he worked five and a half days a week, every week. He'd be gone probably by the time we woke up and come home for dinner and we'd see him at night. And we all just sort of got on and went to school and did our sports stuff. You know, our family was pretty close. Nowhere near as close and as affectionate and communicative as the Custersons, but you know we all kind of looked out for each other. And where did the love of music come from? Was that an influence from your parents or from your friends? And what music were you into? I, I, I think the music actually came from the Custersons. I mean, I, you know, my parents played music, and that certainly would have influenced. You know, look, some of my earliest memories are five kids jammed into a Ford Fairlane with, you know, uh, ACDC's TNT or Skyhawks mm. on cassette in the car. And, you know, so that came from somewhere. And, you know, my love of music, yeah, would come from my parents. would be playing country music mostly at home a little bit and from being around the Custersons, really. And I must have gravitated to it because I, look, I remember buying uh records as a kid i was in you know me and yaki performed skyhook's horror movie in uh our grade one talent quest i remember my first records were you know acdc tnt so that's 1976 so i'm into music pretty early somehow i guess it was around you know countdown and yeah. and just radio being on it was just around i mean maybe it was just a suburban thing out then i'm not sure I uh, listening to you say a Skyhook horror movie. <laughs> me and D, me and D, we often we're in the lounge room, and one of us will sing a song, and that is one song that quite, gets often sung between us in the lounge room. Not I, sure why. No, <laughs> the ripper. Can you kind of take us to where? How did you're well established in the music industry, and that is you know your career. Where does it start, mate? Like, how old were you when you got your first job at ATM? I, I, that's the only job I've ever had is in the music industry. And 
I was very fortunate. I grew up in Dandenong and, you know, through the Custersons, you know, I used to help them with their country band and go around and be a little bit of a roadie type person. So I got to see a little bit of, I don't even want to call it the business, but I got to see a little bit of a sort of live situation. And in high school, I seriously got into music, like loved music, buying records all the time, um, listening to the radio. You know, there was great TV shows on with music. One of the other weirder things that happened is a secondhand record store called Dixon's Recycled Records. There used to still be one in Dandenong, but one opened up when I started high school, one opened up on the way home from uh, where I'd catch the bus every day. So I'd go into this record store every day and buy, you know, people were, it was before CDs, but anyway, you could buy a record. So, you know, I'd buy a Led Zeppelin record a week and a Rolling Stones record or a Neil Young record. And so I just got deeply, deeply into music. And anyway, I, I didn't even know what the music industry was. I, I had no... I did my HSC, you know, we used to go to concerts all the time. I'd turn people at school onto music and I didn't know what the music industry was. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was a good, you know, good drawer. I think I enrolled for some um, some sort of architecture or drafting stuff at, at uni. I don't even know if I got in. I didn't know what I was going to do. I wasn't concerned. Like there wasn't a concern back then it was you could get a job if you wanted a job you could get a job and you're out in Dandenong it's still kind of the country it's like whatever it'll work out or I'll stay at home for a while or I'll go and work for the old man or or something but I was away on summer holiday down at uh, beautiful Rosebud as I did every year with a, a long-time mate of mine he used to go down there with his family and his brother-in-law showed up and he he was running this merchandising company and we started talking about music and, you know, he obviously heard my passion and said, well, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, oh, I don't know. I actually don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, well, why don't you come in and come in and you can come and sweep the floors at the, my, my business, you know? And that was, that was ATM, which is Australian tour merchandising. And that was uh, in the mushroom building, in Dundas Lane in Albert Park. And so I went in there and sort of, you know, I now own that company with uh, the Gadinskis. And um, I didn't really know what I was, you know, got in there and just found my feet and, you know, just took it a day at a time and things weren't all that stressful back then. And just sort of got away with it. Because of my upbringing, I was always respectful of everyone and, you know, knew through my old man, knew what hard work was all about. And, just dug in where I had to dug in and luckily enough I was a you know likable enough person and yeah just sort of formed relationships and ended up going on tours and sort of meeting some of my idols or you know meeting the rock stars of the day and knowing how to behave around them and you know to say the right or not say the wrong thing and sort of learnt how to be cool a bit to be honest you know. How old were you at this stage? Because I know in that time, Melbourne was a booming area for music and a lot of things were happening. There was all these great venues, some of which aren't even there anymore. So how old were you and who were you being exposed to? And you talk about acting the right way. Can you give us sort of an example of that? Well, I was 18, you know, I was 18. I started when I was 18, January 
yeah, turned 18 in the November and I started the job in, in mid-January the next year. So, um, and who were being exposed to, you know, I was a huge Cold Chisel fan and Jimmy Barnes had put his solo record out the last year of high school. Australian Crawl was still around, The Oils, international stuff. You know, I always loved Neil Young and The Stones. Uh, what was starting around there? You know, some, that band Big Country I was into, U2 were still cool then. And, you know, yeah, there were venues everywhere. And, you know, the venue, the, a place called The Venue in St Kilda, we'd go to a lot. We saw a bunch of bands there, sold a loads of merchandise there over the time. But And sort of so far as acting cool, well, you know, I, I guess I'd always sort of had an inner confidence that, you know, I was either how do you say, kind of funny or good-looking or confident, <laughs> good footballer or a good basketballer or, you know, maybe even to the point of, you know, because of my family, I, I, I didn't really, not that we were hugely wealthy by any degree, but I never had any sort of financial concerns, you know. I never, you know, not that money was ever just handed out to me, but I never had to go off oh, who's putting food on the table you know it was just a sort of and, and you know I, was, I had passions really is the big thing that I had you know so if I was talking to somebody about let's say they mentioned Neil Young well I'll fucking talk to you about Neil Young and I know all about him and I'm passionate about him and yeah he's cool and you know he, he did this and he did this and oh wow you know that yeah yeah and uh and funnily enough Neil Young was some of the first shows I sold merchandise at. So that was even wilder. But yeah, just, I don't know if that's answered the question. It has. Well, I was going to ask you, um, as an 18-year-old or late teens, I should say, did you name drop some of these people to pick up chicks? And how did, how did that go for you? <laughs> uh, not, not really. I mean, I think I was in a relationship, I guess, when I was then. Well, maybe I wasn't. I, I'm just a bit blurry back there. <laughs> So that kind of drugs were involved at this point too for quite a while. So, um, yeah. you know, you, you need to take into account the haze of, of <laughs> things. But the short answer is kind of yes, you know. I mean, you kind of, not so much dropping names. It's more about if you're on the road and, you know, you're hanging around the band or you're part of the entourage, I mean... You know, these things happen. It doesn't happen. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's that way anymore in the politically correct world that we are, but it certainly happened back then. Yeah. <laughs> when you, when you, you talk about you going and sweeping the floors, I, I really, it makes me think about young people today, whether whatever industry they want to get into, in, from my perspective, footy. So I wanted to work in footy at the highest level. And a lot of people, young people, they're very entitled, these younger generations, and they, they want it now and they're impatient. What was it like? Did you, you know, you said you were sweeping floors. You know, what, what are some of the other shitty jobs you had to do and how long did it take before you worked your way up? Because so many young people don't understand that's what it takes. It takes years of doing the crap stuff. Well, yeah, it, it was actually boring the first six months or so there because they'd kind of given me a job that didn't, kind of exist in a way you know uh, you know one of the things i was doing the uncanny x-men which was a band who were very popular at that time i had to run their fan club and their lead singer 
his name was Brian as well. So these were days before internet and email. So you'd call people up and I'd have to call them up and say, hi, it's Brian from the Uncanny X-Men fan. <laughs> <laughs> You know, people would freak out. Go, oh my god! Just, no, 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 not, not that, Brian. But um, look, you just had to do what had to be done. There wasn't, you know, as warehouse work. It was going and selling at shows. I mean, to me, it was all exciting. You know, we we're in the mushroom building, so you know that was a time when the mushroom empire itself was also really small, and so. Jimmy Barnes or Paul Kelly would release a new song. We'd all go and list, watch the video in the boardroom. I had to go get the checks signed. You know, I had to go up to Gidinski's office and get him to sign a check. I mean, it was back in the businesses were small. Things weren't so hectic. So you had time to develop a relationship with people and just sort of, you know, work things out. Things weren't as hectic. This, this internet, this connectivity... It's ruined a lot of stuff. <laughs> and so far as, I mean, you know, people feeling entitled. Yeah, I, I, I guess that is a bit of a case now. And there's, I guess there's all these definitions of what younger people want to aspire to go and do. And, oh, I want to be this, I want to be that. And it's like, yeah, well, sometimes you just got to throw yourself out there. It's like, oh, I want to work in fashion. Okay go and fucking be a shop assistant and learn something about it. I mean, I guarantee you will. I mean, one of my, you know, one of the best things I learned for business and also just for my industry is, you know, for eight years, eight or nine years, I, I toured the country constantly with, with bands and I stood behind a t-shirt counter and sold t-shirts to the general public, fucking, you know, everywhere from Australia and New Zealand, like big towns to little towns. And I, so I watched people come in through at seven o'clock sober and leave fucking hammered at 1am. And, and I'm standing there, I'm the rock and roll hot dog seller. I have to deal with them. So I get to understand humanity and, you know, people's attitudes and, you know, bands' attitudes and what works in a show, what works for people's enjoyment of a show and all those things. That was a really valuable thing for me. And I say that because it's like, you know, back to someone wanting to work in fashion or whatever, you know, go and learn something or observe or, or, or whatever. And then it sort of makes, it just gives you a knowledge and get a bit of understanding instead of, you know, the world is unlimited. So instead of grasping, what if, what if, what if, you've sort of got some, you know, closing that, that direction in a bit more, a bit more focus. You keep mentioning that mushroom empire, which a lot of, like, we know what it is and, and Michael Gadinsky and the Gadinskys. Can you just, I guess, talk about you left ATM, you created Love Police and now you're back and, and you're all one. I guess. Can you just explain the whole situation, what Mushrooms is, Mushroom Records, the Mushroom Group and, and what you are now all together? I'll try <laughs> Mushroom was an independent uh, record label started by Michael Gadinsky, I think in the 73 or something like that. After a while of releasing records, he, he started promoting tours. Eventually, he formed Frontier Touring. Um, and then he started, to, well, he had a publishing company for some of the artists and some international artists. And look, over years and years, it's grown into what is now the Mushroom Group which is a bunch of record labels, publishing, merchandising, films, 
fuck, I don't know what else. It is. There's, a, there's a load of stuff. It's like a whole conglomerate. But it's, it still is one big family business. The merchandising company within that group is Love Police ATM, and that's a merger of my former business and the mushroom merch business, which was ATM, Australian Tour Merchandising. In the sort of early-ish 90s, I, I was actually on tour with Jesus Christ Superstar Tour, and I had a religious experience on the Jesus Christ Superstar Tour. And uh, I had a spiritual experience in a Brisbane hotel room and decided to leave my current career and go and become a writer. So I slowly left my occupation and uh, ended up in New York a few months later, ended up in Nashville for a year after that, then ended up back in Sydney somehow. And, uh, and that's where I've stayed till now. But when I got back to Sydney, I kind of, I managed the band for a while. And I just kind of ended up getting drawn back to merchandising work. It was at a time of the mid-90s by then where, uh, you know, bands like UMI were starting to really happen. And I just happened to get lucky and fall in with that crowd, the big day out crowd and the UMI and this little band called Powderfinger. And, um, and, and so I became the sort of king of that world. The big day out was huge. You know, we did all the artwork and merchandise for that. Through UMI, we ended up with Powderfinger, Grinspoon, you know, name all, all those bands from those days. And then and then we just sort of became the, you know, the cool merch company there in the mid-2000s for many years. And, you know, Splendor in the Grass started. We started doing that. We were just the, because of connections, we started doing all that, all that sort of stuff. So that's where the... Uh, yeah, I, I, and that was Love Police, and I also started to promote tours. I brought out this old blues man, Tony Joe White, who I'd really liked his music. Didn't really know how to be a tour promoter, but I'd been on plenty of tours, so kind of worked that out pretty quickly. And then that was a success, so I just kept doing that, and you know, brought out this UK band Gomez, who we toured for many years, and found this little band called the Black Keys and they became superstars and sort of started indulging myself in some of the Americana kind of country music that I liked. Started sort of working a lot in that area as well. Now I was going to just say like with the Love Place kind of merchandise side of things, Powderfinger is another one of the bands we, uh, we sing along to all the time in this household. So let's use Powderfinger as an example. What's the process of getting the rights to be able to sell. Are you in conjunction with Powderfinger? You're on behalf of Powderfinger. Can you sort of take us behind the scenes of how this all works? Yep. I mean, these days, in essence, we're like a logistics provider. You know, what we do is we, we create a range of merchandise in conjunction with the band. Either we design it or design it or a combination of both. And, you know, we budget it all out and we make it and we sell it online or on tour. And we share those profits with the band. You know, we fund it all and, um, and, and then we just report the sales and the profit losses to the band. Uh, the band or the festival, band or festival, same thing. They get the absolute lion's share of, of the profits, you know, significantly the lion's share, let's just say. I won't get a lot, but yeah, and, and, and that's what we do. And, you know, there's all kinds of attitudes and egos and, personalities along the way there you know a band might you know you're you're a seasoned professional in merchandising but a band that they know better than you and 
Mm. And uh, so you go, go go down that route and to find out that, oh, shit, it's not selling. It's like, oh, really? I kind of told you that. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, the way we act is we're very artist-friendly and we do what they say. And that's kind of how I've always been is supporting the act and trying to instill in them that we know what we're doing and it's worthwhile having listened to what we have to say and combine that with what you want to do and let's try to make it all work and enjoy the process and maximize the money. And, you know, all of it is just really communication and, and, you know, yeah, paying attention to what's going on in the scene and what's working and, and see how we go. My, my, my general manager has this classic saying, all these bands, it comes up every few meetings. It's like, you know, our fans are different. And he's a classic. He says, no, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> and, and it's very true. They are all, it's, it's you know, there's, there's not, anyway, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I'm just thinking back to what you said at the start, which was you just trusted whatever was going to happen. You know, if I end up working for my dad, I work for my dad. If, oh, there's always going to be an opportunity has that followed through to you now running a business, that mindset of like, what will be, will be? Like, have you been pretty trust the process kind of guy or, or do you get caught up in stress or what's, I guess, what's your take when it comes to business? Look, I've just kept rolling in business and in life. You know, I'm a Scorpio fire horse and I take Neil Young as my inspiration, rightly or wrongly. He just keeps on keeping on. The universe is provided to me. And I reckon if you're a good enough person and do good enough things for yourself and those around you, it will look after you. But you, you have to have positivity and you have to dream and you have to kind of dream big and accept little dreams coming true. And you have to, and all this takes time. You know, I'm 55 this year and it takes time to learn all these things, but you know, you have to believe in nature. You have to believe in humanity. You have to believe, you have to look at the good side of everything. It's not to say there isn't shitty stuff going on everywhere and you have to be respectful of that too. But I've just found being positive and open has just allowed it, everything to keep rolling with me. One of the other things that is, that's just sort of, made things easier for me is I'm a bit in this unreal situation in, in our merchandising business. It's a, it's kind of unique. Whilst we do not get the lion's share of profits, we hold the money. So if we go and do a million dollars at an Ed Sheeran show, that money goes into our account and then we take all the costs out and we pay him the lion's share of profits. But not talking about COVID times because it's just fucked us all. But, you know, in the good times of merchandise, there's so much money in the bank accounts, not ours, but there's just money. It just keeps, so long as tours keep happening, we're not stressed about money. You know, we know our profitability of the company. It's not like, and it's the same with me with, with life. Like I've never loaned a cent in my life for, for business. You know, it just keeps rolling. And so, you know, that, that is a bit of an unreal situation that I'm in that very few people I think are in. It's like if you have an idea to go and start a business, well, generally you've got to go and find the money to do it. Whereas in my case, 
when I started tour promoting the merch company, there was money in the bank account. Okay, it wasn't all mine, but fuck it, I'm not going to spend it all and, you know, we'll put some back in there or, or whatever. Yeah, but certainly for me, just being positive and being open to stuff and, and you've got a budget. Do a budget every now and then is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, I think it's honestly it's very inspiring because at the start of the podcast you mentioned how much you loved music as a teenager. Now you're working in the industry and you had all these cool experiences. For me, it's already really inspired me. I just want to acknowledge that. But on the business side of things, how do you actually, when it comes to say you've got Ed Sheeran, you mentioned him before he's coming out to Australia. How do you decide how many t-shirts to print and and what do you do with leftover T-shirts? Oh, I'm sort of fascinated by that side of things. Okay, so it's all maths. It's all budgeting. It's all maths. It's all historical data. You know, I'd love to tell you that there's some whiz-bang computer program. You just punch the numbers. But there isn't. But there kind of is. There's an Excel spreadsheet. We do so much work in merchandising. You can predict it pretty much. And you don't go ahead and print. If you need 5,000 T-shirts for the entire tour and it's six shows, well, you don't print 5,000. You print 3,000. And then you look at the sales after one show and go, oh, that white T-shirt didn't sell as well as we expected. We need more black T-shirts. Let's order more of those. And you balance it out. Generally, unless it's a one-off event, generally you can have a couple of bites at the cherry to kind of manage your stock. Because ideally, you're ending up with not a lot of product. Now, what happens to that product at the end of a tour? There's many varied things that happen there. Some people just want to get rid of it. And by get rid of it, sometimes it's donated to charity. Sometimes it's just stored. Sometimes it's destroyed. Um, more than often than not these days, it goes online, which people often think think oh my god we'll sell thousands online well generally speaking concert merchandise is dead probably 24 hours after it's mm. the show one of my coin phrases is you know concert merchandise is a financial commitment to an emotional experience it's like i'm at that show i'm excited i've paid my 100 bucks for a, t for a ticket i've got there oh wow fuck look at that t-shirt great i'm gonna get it <laughs> If that T-shirt pops up on your screen the next day or it's like, yeah, whatever, I saw the show last night, you know. And, and so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll sell online. Yeah, that's, that's about what happens. I mean, the aim is that there isn't much product left and we're pretty good at doing that. Having said that, that does accumulate, accum accumulate over the number of tours we do, you know. I don't think I'm incorrect in saying, you know, at the height of the – pre-COVID, we, we're doing 300 tours a year. Might be more, might be 500 tours a year. So, you know, it's a lot of lot, lot of tours. And therefore, even if it's two boxes per tour, that's 1,000 boxes of shirts. That's 8,000 shirts right there. Sorry, 80,000. <laughs> <laughs> Supply and demand. Yeah. What about you said earlier, which I had no idea and I love it, the fact that you actually, for eight or nine years, you were travelling Australia and actually – you were, you know, the hot dog seller in the rock and roll industry. You were behind the counter yourself. What was that like? Because um, when I go to a show and the lines are going out the door and it's a, it looks like a stressful situation and you were behind that and, and experiencing it, it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty red hot. Well, it, it was, to me, it was a lot of fun. I mean, 
first off, there's no FPOS, right? So it's all cash. And so you're there like a fucking circus master with cash in your hand, you know, spruiking a little bit and maybe talking to the ladies or, uh, you know, smashing some drinks. I've got to remember, this is an occupation where you're kind of encouraged to drink on the job yeah. or, or it's acceptable, let's say. Yeah. But look, that was a lot of fun. And when, you know, I did a load of Jimmy Barnes tours and things like that, Jimmy Barnes shows in pubs and, uh, you know, you'd be five and six deep at the end of a show. And I loved that. I fucking loved yelling out, yeah, you're a large, here you go and throw on the shirt, grab their money and do all that and, you know, have it all set up so I can do it. I actually loved it. I still say I'm the best T-shirt seller that there is in the country. I could still beat anyone, I reckon. FPOS might fuck with me a little bit. But, uh, but yeah, I, I really, really loved that. And, you know, you get out there, you'd set up your stall or you might have a seller with you as well and you'd just deal with it. I mean, what was interesting in there is when I started in the business, merchandising was like, what the fuck? Who the fuck is this merchandise guy? You know, we, we, we're treated like shit and still are <laughs> to a degree. But I would like to say, say that I personally have really bought the role of the merch person into a much better respected position in the Australian industry and you know that's for me you know being able to hang out with everyone and people go oh he's not a fucking wanker after all you know it's like there is a lot sexism fucking everything whatever it is well I can't think of the words right now but you know it was hardcore out there in the in the mid 80s dealing with fucking old school roadies who when I say old school they were probably 32 at the time but you know, a lot of old school, very old school attitudes everywhere towards merchandisers. But, you know, I'd like to think over my time, that's something I've certainly helped. Well, I, I know that I've helped that position become a lot more connected and accepted in the business. On that, you, you talk about, I guess, almost like the passing of the baton. There's that old school type back in the day. Have you seen a huge shift into how merchandise and even I guess, just live shows and how everything's run from, say, in the 90s to now? Like, is it a massive difference? There is. At the heart of it, there isn't. But if you peel it all back, there is because there's all these, you know, everything's done online. Like, you know, you've got emails. So to set up a gig or do something is, I can probably 100 emails where it might have been a couple of phone calls. And, you know, there is, well, now you've got COVID check-in stuff and all those sort of things. It's probably just a bunch of permit stuff and whatnot that just didn't used to be the case. There's probably insurances and stuff. Most of it's all good, but there's just probably, the easier way to say is there's probably just more red tape type stuff to get through now than there used to be, which, you know, for everything you need to tick off, because of email and communication skills of some people, it's not quite as quick as it all used to be. I, I have to quickly ask, are you, are you a tech whiz or what, what do you classify yourself as when it comes to technology, mate? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good on Excel. <laughs> uh, my life is emails. Yeah. Which I, I, I like. I do like the directness of emails. I don't like when people don't read the email. Um, and just keep asking you the question that's contained 
the email, but yeah, I'm pretty good. Yeah, I'm pretty good. Good. I want to. I just want to jump back just quickly. So you know, when you're five or six deep and you're selling t-shirts, it's eleven o'clock or twelve o'clock at night, and my suspicion, Brian, is that the night doesn't end there and you just go straight to bed. Uh, what happens after that? What's the typical after after a big gig and you've... Uh, big cold chisel gig. Yeah, or... big cold chisel gig. You've made a lot of money. Uh, what happens after sort of 11 or 12 at night? Oh, look, they're the old days, boys. And what would happen then? Well, you just, you'd finish your pack up and by that time the crew's probably packed up and then you'd go to your hotel room and might have been some ladies around or it might have bought some weed or who knows what else is going on and uh just sort of you know have a few drinks and carry on i mean it was there's certainly times in those days where we partied yeah there's certainly we partied (laughs) (laughs) i'd love to talk about michael gudinski for a sec for those who don't know michael gudinski he's an australian music um legend entertainment legend mushroom records now the mushroom group but could you talk a bit about like you mentioned before, you'd have to go up to his office and get the check signed. Like, can you talk about him and how much he's, what a mentor or what, what he's been for you in your life? For those who don't know, Michael Gudinski sadly passed away earlier this year. But yeah, uh, and I'm sure you've battled through that struggle this year as well, mate. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was unexpected and tough. But, you know, like he would have wanted, we're, we're all just getting on with it. But he... Michael was amazing as a kind of mentor and a friend. I've known known him for nearly 40 years. So he's been around in my life for a long time. He was both great to show you how to do things or to observe him on how to do things. But for me also, he was also great to observe how not to do things. So to do things, his passion and his cowboy attitude and his wisdom were, were inspirational. And one of the other things that was great about him is, look, I don't know if you've ever actually dealt with him, but he would fly at a million miles an hour and say a million things at once. And you would actually think he was pretty crazy. And he was crazy, but he knew exactly what he was doing. And he's a very, very wise and intelligent man that you, you wouldn't necessarily think that by the way he carried on. He was also an amazingly loyal person. I, I think that's our relationship was great because of that. He was, you know, he's very loyal to staff. He was always supportive of women in the workplace, sort of unconsciously, really, you know, from the get go. When I started, there was. I think there was probably more women working in the business than, than men then anyway. But so in that respect, in that and others, he always supportive. He was always prepared to, to give you a go, give people a crack at doing something if they had the right idea and right passion. Always wanted to kind of own most of it, but he, he was also very supportive about it. He was great to me and a couple, well, one guy in particular, a good mate of his, who, who I still see, but still great for me to show me how not to do things. And, and in that, I mean, like I looked at Michael, Michael's 68 and, you know, he's working till the day, day he died. And yes, he had a fantastic family and I'm sure he enjoyed every moment with them and all his passions were in, indulged. But 
you know, he worked a lot and that's all he'd ever known. So, so be it. I don't want to be like that <laughs> at 68. I want to be maybe a version of that at 68, but not that version of it. And I'm thankful that I got to see these guys and still get to see one of these guys working at that level. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I, I just want to make sure my path is not going that way. And I'm not saying what they were doing was wrong. I'm sure they loved every minute of it. And they found themselves just where, the, I hope they found themselves just where they wanted to be. But the, um, the workload on Michael's desk and in his head at 68 years of age as he's put his head on the pillow, I don't want that. I don't want that in my head. Yeah. You know, I want to be listening to birds and I want to be playing guitar and I want to be, you know, watching the veggies grow and have, sure, have interests in, in businesses that I'm passionate about and enjoying time with my, with my children and family. I, I've heard a lot about Michael's work ethic and just listening to you, it sounds like got a very similar or in the past, you were saying about, you know, three to 500 tours a year like it's it's heaps how do you how have you been able to manage work-life balance has there even been such a thing in your career so far yeah i'm pretty good at switching off from it yeah i'm I'm just good at switching off i mean everyone kind of always says oh he just seems so relaxed about it all and i guess you know i kind of am i mean it's sort of back to that you know, what's really going to stress you out is what, maybe money? I mean, if you know that you're doing the best possible job, you, you know, if you've been asked to do the merchandise or promote a tour and you're passionately committed to it and financially committed and you're doing your best job and you think you the results are going to go the way you thought they were, well, what's the stress about it? You just got to roll with it. And with it comes experience of like, you know what? It's probably going to work out. It's probably going to work out. What's the worst can fucking happen? It's like, it's not, you know, you're kind of ready. It's, you know, it's sounding a bit like dimmer and the things we can control and whatnot, but, but it all is a bit of, you know, it is a bit of a football coaching vibe in a way. It's, it's like you just, you just sort of roll with it and, and deliver the things you can do and, and try not to be stressed. And look, I, I've lived in Bondi for the last 25 years coming down and jumping into the ocean every day or, you know, I swim, I do laps for, you know, 40 or 50 laps or I swim across the bay, you know, they're, they're meditation or I go for walks in nature or all those sort of things. They're, they're totally important to my, to my mental health and my, and my physical health. I was going to say, mate, it's, uh, you're probably not going to be as stressed when your own football team wins three out of, you know, four possible premierships <laughs> yeah. in a row. So well, well, I'm very stressed this year, but I'm learning to do that. But that's life for me. You know, I've back for the Tigers all my life, passionately. And, you know, I'm, I'm a tiny bit, I'm one step connected to the club in a way. And to be around that and to have taken my kids to two of the flags, I couldn't sneak them across the border last year, but I did. You know, to have them and to have, for us to share that joy, yeah, it's just been amazing. Did you say you went last year in Queensland? Yes. Oh, <laughs> very nice. I actually went to Port at the, to the game in Adelaide and then I snuck across the border for the grand final. Yeah, that's connections. Yeah, that's pretty nice. <laughs> I, I, I want to ask you, before we kind of finish up, what are you most proud of, BT? You know, throughout, it doesn't have to be career, it could be family, it could be anything. Throughout your life, what do you think 
you know, what's your most proudest moment for you? I think in business, and I'm still striving to do this, it's when I promote a tour or I do a range of merchandise that resonates with people, I can see they enjoy it. It might make me money. Might not. That's not as important. But what I set out to do, what I set out to do is achieved and people can share in that. So, you know, if I set out, I, I decide to do an Americana festival in Williamstown that I've done for five or six years and, and you know, I set that up and it's, it's a success initially, immediately and people are like, oh, my God, this is the greatest day of our life. It's like, fucking great. I knew it would be. Pretty much things like that or, or a merchandise designer. You know, you, you're there at a show and you know you've designed this merch and you've made sure there's enough of it there and it's selling really well and you hear someone say, oh, fucking cool shirt. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, that's great. And, you know, if it sells and the band likes it too, it's like everyone's happy. I guess those things, you know, I'm pretty proud of my guitar playing at the moment. I've really stepped up on the guitar playing. What are you playing? Well, I just sort of play, I'm trying, I'd almost, um, I'm heading in the country rock electric guitar world, but I just sort of playing guitar, you know, I've always, I really regret back in the early Custerson days that I didn't practice an instrument or was in, wasn't encouraged to practice an instrument because like all things in life, you realise it's just practice to do anything. Mm. <laughs> what, what would be your advice, Brian? I mean, I know a lot of growing up too, a lot of our friends were musical. Everybody wanted to be the lead guitarist or the front person or whatever. But for people that really are passionate about music, it, it was often discouraged to go down that path because it's such a tough industry to get into. That's what we were kind of told. So I know we're in a pandemic-affected world at the moment, but... What would be your advice to a young person that really is passionate and they want to get involved in some way? As a musician or...? or just in the industry. Just in the industry. Just be realistic about what you want to do and be open to anything. If you're absolutely amazing, call me. <laughs> Done. <laughs> you know, it's difficult. Like, I meet a bunch of people out and about and they come up and go oh my god i'd love to work in the music industry and you know they give me a rave and it's like you know what you actually sound okay and okay here's my website go to my website hit the email button hit the contact button that comes to me just send me an email and and i i guarantee i've done that 50 times in the last 10 years i'm not even sure that one person has emailed it sort of speaks about the passion and drive you need to have because if look if you're no good no one's going to give you a job anywhere but if you're passionate and can shut up and listen and then give you you know then put your two cents in when it's asked for or when you can see like i think this might help the project as i said i go back to that time where i was standing behind a t-shirt counter i learn about business and humanity you know, egos and all this stuff, just observing, just observing. And, you know, I used to take people on tour with merchandising and I'd just, or, or people would be selling merch with me and I'd say, just watch me, watch me and do what I do to get it done. Love it. it's, it's easier said than done, that's for sure. Would you happen to have a story, BT, whether it's funny or crazy or stressful around 
has a bunch of t-shirts not rocked up to a venue or has, has, you know, an artist plane been delayed and you had to push back the show. Like, is there a story that you could share that people would just go, fuck, I can't believe that is actually true. What can I say? Well, the old, the days of shirts, not making shows, they actually happen every now and then now in the old days before computers, it never used to happen. Weirdly. What can I say? I'll tell you this because I know you guys have bared your soul. So I'm going to tell you a little story I don't think I've ever told anyone because it kind of connects a bunch of these things that you're saying. I had been working at ATM for maybe three months and I had to send some Robert Cray T-shirts. I think they were. Robert Cray, the smooth, the strong persuader. I think it was. Yeah, it was Robert Cray. Anyway. I had to send some shirts from Melbourne, Sydney. And one of the instructions I got with arranging freight was something along the lines of you've got to follow your freight. So you would, the freight would get picked up and you've got to check it got delivered. So I religiously did that, did it all the time. Well, the one time I didn't do it, the shirts didn't get there. The promote in, in this case, it was worse because the deal was with the band and the promoter. And the promoter was calling for the blood of the merchandising company. So the merchandising company, ATM I was working for, was only three of us then. So I was a scapegoat. I actually got fired because of it, which I guess I could take them to court these days. <laughs> but I now own the company, so it doesn't matter. So I got fired and I was so, so sad. I, was, I cried as an 18-year-old. I was still living at home. I went home, I was fucking crying. I was so, so sad. It's like, oh my God, I have ended up in the job of a lifetime. Can't believe it. I've just fucked it up. And I ended up, uh, they ended up calling me not long after it, like a couple of days and said, look, how about we just start sending you out on tour? You know, I'm going to send you on a tour and do this. And, and that was actually a godsend. It was much better fun. <laughs> I think more money. And uh, I got to go on the road <laughs> and build my career. So, you know, there's that. That's that. And so, you know, I was always thankful that I got that second chance. I always followed my freight from then on in. That's awesome. Yeah. Could I just ask before we wrap up, any, uh, any merchandise that's a little bit unusual that you've sold in your time? Well, yeah, we've got the chilling it glass bong. <laughs> Do you know who Jimmy Rees is? Yeah, yes. Jason, Jason, Jason. <laughs> His wanker coffee cups, we just sold a very large amount of those. Um, Rathal, his, I, I, I came across him as the packaging guy and I, I said, oh, we've got to sell his glass. Jason's glass and I said but put it in a bag and then put it in a box and ship it so we did that and that's done very very well too <laughs> what else nothing outright the bong's pretty good I mean we do weed jars you know it's chilling it weed jar we've done uh, weed grinders for the chats I, I did invent the I think I invented the rock and roll stubby holder uh, 1996 at the big day out we thought let's put the playing times on a stubby holder and they actually 
sold, and so that's now a staple of the merch business. Well, that's 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 to be honest, that is besides a t-shirt at a concert. If I'm going to a festival, I love going to Groove in the Moon, Bendigo, and every year I'll buy a stubby holder every time. Well, there you go, and just to give you, bring it all back around. Cat, who is one of the managers of Big Day Out, texted two hours ago. She had a beautiful baby girl this morning in Newcastle. Aurora. That's awesome. Well, BT, I just want to thank you, mate, for your time coming on today. And to be honest, hearing the words that you spoke about, the Custy family, I um, was pretty humbled and I feel pretty lucky to be a Custy in hearing the impact that they had on you growing up, mate. And I actually told Yaki, I ran into Yaki last week um, or a couple of weeks ago. It was my dad's birthday and we, funnily enough, we both, after work, we both went to the cemetery to see my dad and... He had, a, he had a, a box of beers and we shared a couple of beers together and, um, and I told him that you were coming on and um, same with his daughter, Brooke Custy, who's killing it um, in the music industry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I told them you were coming on, mate. So I know they'll be listening and, and he, when they hear that about, you know, what the impact the Custies have had on you, mate, I know they'll be wrapped too. So, mate, I just want to thank you for, for your time. Absolute pleasure, boys. I think what you're doing is sensational if there's... Anything I can do to help you along the journey, do let me know. Well, I also just want to throw in before we let you go, Brian. It's uh, I've had a great time. It was an honour to meet you. Um, and I just yeah, I just want to acknowledge you as well. Thank you for being so open. Thank you for your time. And we've had a, we've had a great laugh. Yeah, I can't thank you just enough. To, just to finish, we've got a guitar in each corner of the room. So when when you are in Melbourne, bring your guitar and we can maybe have a jam. Sounds good, boys. Thanks, BT. Good on you, fellas.